So as you well know, Jesus loved to tell stories. We call them his parables. Uh, and on one occasion, one of the most famous stories is the story of the, the sower, the farmer who goes out to sow his field, and the seed falls on four different types of soil, hard soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, and some that falls on good soil and produces a great harvest. Uh, on that particular occasion, after he's done telling that story, the disciples turn to him and, and they're like, Jesus, why do you keep telling all these stories? Uh, it's almost as though you're trying to shroud what you're saying or hide what you're saying or just not openly real. Why don't you just simply get up and teach uh, while these stories? And Jesus' answer to them was quite provocative. And I want to read it in Peterson's paraphrase because uh, he puts uh, the turn of the phrase is so beautiful here. So I want to read a little bit of how Jesus responded, and then we'll put some on the screen. You can read with me. The disciples came, and he said to him, why do you tell stories? And he said, well, you've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. Not everybody has this gift, this insight. It hasn't been given to them. Whenever someone has a ready heart for this, the insights and understandings flow freely, but if there's no readiness, any trace of receptivity soon disappears. And then he goes on to say this, and that's why I tell stories. To create readiness, to nudge the people toward receptive insight in their present state, they can stare till doomsday and not see it, listen till they're blue in the face and not get it. I don't want Isaiah's forecast repeated all over again. Your ears are open, but you don't hear a thing. Your eyes are awake, but you don't see a thing. The people are blockheads. That's why I wanted to read that text. <laughs> I'm like, yes and amen. Eugene Peterson, you get it. They're blockheads. They stick their fingers in their ears so they won't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut so they won't have to look. So they won't have to deal with me face to face. So one of the greatest challenges or mysteries, if you might, to gospel ministry is this question, why is the entire world simply not flocking to Jesus? If it is really the good news that we say it is and understand it to be that Jesus has made a way for us to be right with our Creator, then why is the entire world just not lining up at the door saying, we've got to get to this guy named Jesus? Why is it that some people get it and some people don't? And so I want to jump to the end of the message. I'm going to ask you some questions we get to the end, and I just want to run ahead there and ask you these questions. Do you have a soft heart? Are you walking toward Jesus, his word, his people? Are you intentionally trying to cultivate a receptive heart to the things of God? Uh, in, in a lot of ways, this message is a hard-hitting message. There's a, a difficult challenge in this text. There's a lot of blessing and joy and goodness in this text. And there's also a really sobering challenge in this text. It, it was a tough study this week. Uh, if you talk to Carolyn She'll let you know. I came up out of the my study in the basement and banging my head against the wall several times this week, just going, this is a hard, it's a hard birth this week. We're in the final hours of Jesus' life and the final conversation with the 11, and there's five full chapters, said this many times, of basically, if you have a, a red letter edition like I've got in front of me, you look at these full pages and it's like almost entirely red ink. It's Jesus, the longest, most intimate dialogue that he has with the 11 before his crucifixion. And the main focus in these five chapters is Jesus saying to them, I'm leaving you, I'm leaving you, I'm leaving you, I'm leaving you. 25 times he says, I'm leaving you, but don't be afraid. Take comfort in what I'm going to share with you. 
And so this paragraph from chapter 1331 to chapter 1431 is one chunk of the paragraph in this conversation, and it carries three themes, but it's really one thought, but it's too long for us to cover in one weekend. So we have spread it out over three weekends. So you need to have the two weekends ago, last week, and this week to finish out this paragraph that Jesus gives these three comforts. I'm leaving you. Yes, that's true, but take comfort in one another's love. A new commandment I'm giving you, that you would love one another as I have loved you. So yes, I'm away, but you have one another. So look around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, like we need one another. As I have loved you, as I'm going to lay my life down for you, so you too should lay your life down for one another. You're not alone, you have one another. Take comfort in that. Take comfort in the fact, last weekend, that I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm just going to the Father's house, and I'm adding a room on the house for you, the new heavens, the new earth. I am returning. So take comfort. Keep your eyes on the eastern skies. I'm going to return. The day is coming when the Son of Man will flash across the skies. I am going to return again. Take comfort in this hope and keep your eyes up in the midst of dark days. And then today gets to the third comfort. I'm not leaving you alone. I'm actually going to return to you in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. In the middle of those three comforting words, there are so four questions and objections or interruptions that, that get woven into the story, and we've, we've covered three of them already. Peter uh, saying, where are you going? And then Thomas going, uh, we don't even know where you're going, and how would we know the way to get there? And then Philip saying, you know, if you could just show us the Father, uh, then we'd be satisfied. And today, another question gets dropped into the middle. Judas, the other Judas, not Iscariot. Ask Jesus, how is it that some people see and other people don't see? So three comforts and four questions. So we've covered the first two-thirds of it, and now we're going to cover the last third. So 17 verses from chapter 15, 14, 15 on. And it says this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken while I'm still with you but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives you do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father's greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let's go from here. So rather than walking through it verse by verse by verse, as we typically do, or line by line, we're going to look in three things, three different words. We're going to look at a word of comfort 
and a word of warning in the middle. We'll spend most of our time there. And then a word of rejoicing at the end. And so Jesus starts with a comforting word. Uh, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me, he said at the opening of chapter. And in essence, he says here, you are not alone. I am leaving you, that's true. But I'm going to send another one like me, another helper, another comforter. And then it is identified clearly as the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and and the, the Greek word is paraclete, one who comes alongside of us, who, who tucks up in close to be our comfort. So verse 16 and 17, I'm leaving, but I'm going to ask the Father to send the Spirit. And it's the first of five short comments about the Holy Spirit in these next three chapters. And and today's passage doesn't actually go into a lot of detail about his ministry and his work. It just gets introduced here. Jesus just drops it. And then he comes back in chapter 16 and he will circle back around and he will dig deeper down into the work of the Holy Spirit when he says the Holy Spirit will come to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. Uh, The Holy Spirit will magnify Christ. He will make much of me. It's the main work of the Holy Spirit is to lift up and exalt Jesus Christ to make much of him. And today's passage, he doesn't really go into great detail at all. He basically just introduces it here, and then we'll come back to it. But what this text does tell us are these two key things, that we are not left alone, that the Holy Spirit will be with us. Uh, It's the relational aspect that another helper, uh, indicating another helper like me, just as I have been with you in the flesh in in a very real sense, another one like me will be with you. And so there's this deeply relational aspect of his spirit communing with our spirit. And not only will he be with us, but specifically he's going to teach us. He will instruct us and equip us. So those two things are mentioned in our text. And there's so much more, of course, that we could say if we would just press pause there and then begin to flip through all of the New Testament and all of the various teachings on the person and the work of the Spirit. But in this particular context, in this moment, Jesus doesn't go any further than that. He just simply says, I'm not leaving you alone. He promises us that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth is going to be with us. That Jesus, just as he was in the flesh, will send another one who will literally, it says, make his dwelling with you. Uh, Interesting there, if you're looking at verse 23, you see it is a Trinitarian declaration. The Father and the Son together will make their home with us. And he said, and you're like, but I thought you said the Spirit will make his home with us. Yes, the Father and Son in the person and work of the Spirit, the Trinitarian nature of Father, Son, and Spirit. Now you will know this, that it's a promise from the Old Testament. That one day the Spirit will be poured out on his people. So difference between the Old and the New Testament. And that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God did not fill people, did not stay, did not rest in them. The Spirit would come and go. The Spirit would rest on a person for a particular assignment, for a time, would fill them for a moment, but not necessarily for a lifetime. Now, there were exceptions, but for the most part, the Holy Spirit would be given for a moment in time and then would be lifted, but a a day would come. So do you know who the very first Holy Spirit-filled person mentioned in the Scriptures was? It was not a preacher, it was not a prophet, it was not some, you know, highfalutin denominational leader or something like that. The first person we see filled with the Spirit was an artist. Did you know that? Exodus 35 and 36, they're going to build the temple, build the tabernacle out in the wilderness, and it says there's a guy named Bezalel, that's his name, and he is full of the Holy Spirit. And then you go on to read the description, he's a craftsman, he's an artisan, he's an an architect, a designer, a drawer, a goldsmith, he's a creator, he's an artist. So all you artists in the room, aren't you glad to know that you were the first Holy Spirit-filled people? 
Holy Spirit-filled artists, how we desperately need them. But Ezekiel then makes this promise, looking forward to a future day. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. So just press pause there. Remind yourself back to the foot washing. When Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, if you're clean, I only need to wash your feet, and you are clean. And we referred to this, that the Holy Spirit washes us, cleanses us from everything that we were in the past. We're, We're new. We're clean in him. I've cleansed you from all your idols, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. A promise of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is going to come one day. He will be poured out in a permanent sense of residence in the hearts of the believers in Jesus. Now, there's a tenderness that he adds to this when he says, I won't leave you as orphans. A word picture that we are all familiar with, these first hearers certainly would have been familiar with. And it's an imagery that is both tangible and deeply, deeply moving because every single one of us, at least the adults in the room, know this, that a child should have someone to care for them. And at any point in time, and and probably all of us have had that experience where you've seen a little kid that has been separated from his parents in a grocery store or in the mall or maybe even wandering down the side of a street and you see the terror or the fear and the tears in the eyes of that child and you just know somehow somebody needs to help that kid be reunited with his guardians, right? This sense of being alone. We've all seen it. And it's interesting that it is within the heart of every adult. You take the biggest, burliest guy in the room and you put a newborn in his arms and suddenly that guy becomes a teddy bear. Knowing that this little child is absolutely helpless and left to itself, that child could not survive. And the very essence within us that we know a child needs the care of adults in his life, a mom and a dad. And there's something in the human heart that reaches out. It's why on the macro level, it's why wars bother us. When we look at the nightly news, in particular, what really bothers us in all those images, is it not true when we see the little children? When we see them as children, the victims of all this violence in the world, closer to home, we could talk about the Canadian justice system and how now the Ministry of Family and Child Services tells us in Canada, there are some 60,000 little boys and girls not living with mom and dad. 5,000 of them here, right in British Columbia, that for one reason or another, a parent is not able to care for them and they've gone into the system, quote unquote. And there are many, many families in our church family who have fostered children and are currently fostering children. Many, many who have adopted children who don't have moms and dads. God bless you. May your, your numbers increase. And some of you have lived the story personally. You know what it is to feel left alone. I, I've shared so many times with you, my dad dying when I was 15. So was I an orphan? Well, not truly. I had a mom. But my little sister and I were left at home, the older brothers and sisters long gone, and so the threesome of us, and watching my 48-year-old mother uh, pressing into this new life as a widow, and then beginning to understand in a new and a very real way the promises that I will look after the widow and the orphan, and watching the Lord in many, many miraculous ways look after my mom in those early days, and us as kids when everything, all our stability was ripped away as dad drops dead of a heart attack. Wow. Wow. Orphans, I will not leave you as an orphan. My peace, finally, he says, I'm going to leave with you in verse 27. I'm going to be with you, not as orphans, but I'm leaving you peace. And this word is very interesting. And he goes on to say, not like the world defines 
peace, because we think peace means lack of conflict, lack of trouble, lack of warfare, if there could ever be a peace agreement. So this weekend, we're acknowledging the war to end all wars. 105 years ago, November 11th, was supposed to end them all, right? And it hasn't happened. The world still, there is no peace. There is global conflict, 110 of them right now. And we long and we pray for the Prince of Peace. It's the same word that translates the Old Testament word shalom, the Hebrew word for a deep sense of wholeness and well-being and oneness. The Greek word is Irene, Irene. Is there any Irenes in the room? This is your name. Peace in the midst of a storm. Irene, peace. That even when the storms are raging. So I, I dug up this image on the website. I'm sure you've seen it on some motivational poster somewhere with some little nice saying at the bottom of it. But you've seen this picture, I'm sure, the, the, the lighthouse in the storm, and you see the little guy tucked into the doorway there. So I, I got on the line because I'm like, yeah, probably somebody photoshopped it. There's some, you know, Google check that fact checks it, snoops or whatever. They looked at this and said, no, actually, this is legit. It's actually a still scene from a video. Somebody was videoing this White House, this lighthouse, and in the midst of their video, the guy opens the door and walks out. And lo and behold, in the midst of the storm, there's the guy tucked safely away in that little door spot. What a beautiful sight of peace. Because Jesus goes on, and when we get into chapter 15 and chapter 16, he's going to be like, don't freak out that the world hates you. It hated me too. It's okay. In this world, you'll have tribulation, but I've overcome the world precisely in the midst of the storms of life and the hardships that we have an anchor. We have a peace that the world cannot give us. So one of the most beloved hymns of the last century and even into our day is the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And it is even more loved when you know the story behind it, when you hear it how it was written, how Horatio Spafford was a business guy in Chicago. He was a real estate developer. He had made a lot of money in the downtown strip of uh, Chicago. But you know the story of Chicago in 1871, the great Chicago fire that literally devastated that entire downtown core. 17,000 buildings were lost in that fire. The whole downtown of what is currently Chicago downtown was gone, wiped out. 300 people died. So he survives, his family survives, but their, uh, their businesses are destroyed. He's like, we need to get out of here. Let's go to England. Let's take a vacation. I'll get some things set up. So sends his wife and his four daughters ahead. He stays to wrap up some business. He's going to join them. And as their ship is sailing to England, it collides with another ship and it sinks. And 260 people perish, including his four daughters. His wife makes it on to England and she sends him a two-word telegraph saved alone. So he jumps on the next boat and sails to England to join her. And he asked the captain, whenever we get to that spot, daytime, nighttime, doesn't matter when it is, we, you know the spot where that ship went down. Can you please get a hold of me? I want to say some prayers over that spot. And out in the middle of that ocean, in the icy North Atlantic, he pins the words to this very famous hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, having just lost his four little girls, whatever my lot, having lost his businesses through fire, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You know this, every time we sing that hymn, like the volume level just, whoa, soars, because people know that this is so true. So the chapter opens, don't let your hearts be troubled you trust God, you can trust me too. Now he bookends it here in verse 27, and my peace I am giving you, so don't be troubled, don't be afraid. 
Now, we could end right there. Uh, you probably hope, wish I would, but uh, we could end there and say, that's enough, and just turn into one another in small groups and pray for one another and say, how can we support one another? Because every single one of us in this room has some level of trouble and trial. Some of you are neck deep in a horrific storm right now, and others of you, they're minor trials, but tribulations and trials are the common currency around this room. It's something that we all have in common. We all have stuff that we're facing. And we could pray for and comfort one another, saying two things. We're not alone. We have each other, and we have the Holy Spirit, and God is going to give us peace in the midst of our storms. But maybe more importantly in this text is the word of warning that is woven through it. Because Judas asked this question. So Judas, not Iscariot, you might also know him by the name Thaddeus. So he went by that nickname, uh, probably for good reason. He didn't want to be called Judas. But there were two Judas disciples, one Judas Iscariot and the other named Judas, who was also nicknamed Thaddeus. And he's like, how is it that you're going to show yourself to the world and they're not going to see you, but we will see you? I, I don't get it. And verse 23, Jesus just doubles down on what he's already said in verse 15. Well, Thaddeus, if you love me, if you love me, you'll see me. Because if you truly love me, you're going to obey me. And because of your obedience, the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit and you will recognize and you will see him. And so love and obedience and spiritual sight are intricately linked in this little chunk of scripture. Verse 15, verse 21, verse 23, if you've got your Bibles open, you see it there, if you love me, if you love me, if you love me. That is the controlling theme in these verses. In other words, only obedient children receive the Spirit. Not everyone can, and not everyone will see or receive the Spirit. How is it, Judas says, that they can't see? Surely they have eyes just like we have. How can they not see what we see? And Jesus circles back, in essence, by saying, because they're not obedient, they have actually lost the spiritual capacity for sight. And Jesus is circling back. So at the end of chapter 12, the triumphal entry, the crowds have shouted, Hosanna, 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 save now, save David. And it says there in verse 37 that Jesus didn't entrust himself to the crowds because he knew they didn't believe. And specifically, he hides himself away from the crowds and he now is meeting privately with his disciples. He knew that in that context, this is exactly what Isaiah the prophet was talking about. That passage we read off the top, Peterson's paraphrase, Jesus has quoted that already in chapter 12. These people refuse to come to me in this sense. They refuse to see and hear. Now, there's two threads that we need to follow. The first is here in the Gospel of John, or the second in the Gospel of John, rather. The first is Old Testament texts that Jesus is referring back to here and on several other occasions. That it is not that these people do not have eyes and ears. Of course they have eyes and ears. But they have willfully chosen to close them. So two texts from Jeremiah, two from Isaiah, and one from Ezekiel. Stay with me, stay awake. My people have committed two sins, Jeremiah said. Two sins, two evils. Number one is they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And number two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. In other words, they've given up clean water and they're drinking impure water. Chapter five, and when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? God coming in judgment. You shall say to them, you have forsaken me and served foreign gods. Declare this here, O foolish and senseless people, you who have 
eyes but see not. You who have ears but hear not. Isaiah 5 would say this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, uh, who change the price tags. I heard a speaker use that analogy years and years ago. It would be like going into the store back in the day before barcodes when there were like, like, like literal price tags on the items. And going in and just for a joke saying, I'm going to put the five cent items on the 50 cent items and the 50 cent price tags on the $50 items and the $50 price tags on the $500 items and the, the store clerk's going to go crazy. I've called good evil and evil good. And is this not what our culture is doing right now, right? Calling good things actually evil and calling evil things good. And Isaiah goes on then in his call, the Lord says to him, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, Isaiah 6, but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy their blind, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That ultimately they're going to screw their eyes shut and plug their ears enough so much so that the Lord will actually come and say, I'll give you what you want. And the Lord hardens their heart. Now this is the text Pastor Freddie preached on a couple weeks ago when we we're in chapter 12. That eventually, in a person's rebellious heart, the Lord says, okay, I'll give you what I want, what, what, what you want. Ezekiel 12, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see, but do not see, who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Now, it is a challenging text. And when you read those passages in their context, it is clear that it was not for a lack of God not trying to show himself, God knocking on the door, but it is clear that people willfully and rebelliously refused to listen to them until ultimately God gave them over to what they wanted. In other words, if people say long enough, I don't want you, God, I don't want you, God, I don't want you, God, eventually God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. I will back away. I'll stop knocking on your door. I won't bother you anymore. You've given me the middle finger long enough. I will back off. I get the message. Romans 12, Romans 1 rather. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God to give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then this cryptic, powerful phrase, God gave them over. You see, what people see and hear is determined by the kingdom's sensitivity of their hearts. And a rebellious heart will shroud the human heart from spiritual sight. I heard this line years ago, and if you know the source, and if I'm not saying it right, let me know, but it's stuck in my brain, and I think it goes something like this. There is a line drawn across our life's path, a line where God's mercy meets God's wrath. That there is a line that we dare not cross. That God is all merciful. He is all loving. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is patient with us. But there is also this truth in scripture that eventually you reach this point in time where you finally said to God, enough, 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 enough. And the Lord says, fine, I'll give you what you want. And you cross the line and begin to experience the wrath of God. And the New Testament picks up on that theme of spiritual sight. And it's woven all through John's gospel. John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. John 1, 4, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, verse 9 to 11, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own did not receive him. 
And then John 3.16, this beautiful, well-known text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And then one more in Gospel of John 640. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And that looking is a very specific kind of looking. He uses that phrase several times. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, and they looked to that pole with that snake on it, and they were saved from those snake bites. In the same way, you're going to look with eyes of faith on the Son of Man who is lifted up, but not just seeing him crucified, but seeing actually his glory. But many will refuse to look at him in that way. And their refusal to see results in spiritual inability to see and hear and comprehend. Now, that's a long line of thought. But all of these texts to point this point is that there is a distinguishing factor between seeing and not seeing. Between saying, like those crowds in Jerusalem, crying out, Hosanna, I am not only here to observe, I'm not just here for the show, I'm not here for the signs, I'm not here for the miracles. So do you remember earlier in the gospel when we were looking at it, Jesus turns to the crowd and he goes, the only reason you're here is because yesterday I turned, uh, I fed 5,000 with fish and the loaves and you had a free meal and you're back today because you saw the signs, you want more free bread today. That's the only reason you're here. You don't really believe. And over and over again throughout the gospel, it says he would not entrust himself to them because he knew in the, in the crowd, they were there for the buzz. They were there for the excitement. They were there because everybody's going to the show, but they didn't truly believe this is the savior they needed. And what we cannot miss in this context is this obvious statement that only those who see and hear and know and love and the connection is who are willing to obey. If you love me, you will obey me will receive the Spirit of God. The world can't see them because they won't obey him. And so the warning is clear that if we do not intend to submit our life to our, his lordship, we miss the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're walking in known sin or unrepentant sin, unwilling to surrender, friend, you are running the danger of closing the door on the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Someone has said the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He will not force his way into our lives. He will knock gently on the door, but you must open that door. And Jesus says the door to that welcome is the door of love and obedience. There's a line that is drawn across life path, a line where God's mercy meets God's wrath. Okay, finally, a word of comfort, a word of challenge, of warning, and then there's a word of rejoicing. We know how the story ends, and we'll just briefly touch these last few verses I'm going to the Father, and he's greater. He's going to finish his work. You should rejoice that I'm going to him because everything that I've promised you is going to take place. And I remind you again, I'm telling you this in advance, that when you see it happening, the Spirit's going to remind you of everything I taught. And you're going to be like, oh, that's exactly what Jesus said, the fulfillment of prophecy. 
So literally, when you see the Son of Man lifted up, when you see him at Calvary, when you see in his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, this is what I told you. It is happening. Remind yourself, the promised Holy Spirit, when you get to Pentecost Sunday and it is poured out on you, remember I told you this. When in the coming decades you see the advance of the kingdom, I will build my church. The gates of hell can't prevail. Remind yourself, I told you in advance. And then this cryptic little word, The enemy is coming. Our time for conversation is now short. The prince of this world is coming. But then notice what Jesus says. He has no claim on me. Satan is hovering around this conversation. But Jesus wants to make it very clear that the path that he is just about to walk is not under Satan's control. And we've talked about this several times already in John's gospel, but I want to draw your attention to it again, because there is a line of theology out there that says somehow Satan got in charge of Jesus' crucifixion. That in these last hours of Jesus' life, that somehow Satan was triumphant. He gained a victory until Easter Sunday morning, and nothing could be further from the truth because Jesus makes it very clear. In John 10, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down. Satan didn't take Jesus' life. Jesus offered his life. Amen? The enemy was not in control of even Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus said it was literally his sovereign choice to choose Judas as one of his disciples so that Judas would fulfill Scripture. It was his will that he would endure an unjust trial and death in order that he, the innocent one, could set guilty sinners free. In other words, Jesus is fully in control of even the next hour of his life. The crucifixion was not Satan's plan. Yes, he's hovering there. He's creeping in, but he holds no power. Jesus said he has no claim on me. And so remember this in the days to come. When we get to chapter 15 and he says, the world hates you, that's okay. It hated me too. Your temporary sorrow in the fact that I'm leaving is going to turn to joy as you see the kingdom of God breaking in. And yes, you will face tribulations and trials, but take heart. I've overcome the world. There's peace for you. And then you get to chapter 17 and he says, let me know. Let me tell you, I'm praying for you. And you're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm praying for you. And then you listen to his prayer and you're like, wait a minute. He's like, father, I'm not asking you to take him out of the world. And you're like, what? Jesus, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, and I'm leaving you here. You're leaving us here? Yes, I'm leaving you in the world, and I'm praying for you that the Father would keep you from the evil one. It is why we sing so many songs about spiritual warfare and why those songs resonate so deeply in our soul. One of the most famous spiritual warfare old hymns, 500-year-old hymn. It doesn't really sing that well with our modern guitars and drums, but it is a great hymn of the faith, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Martin Luther. The whole hymn is about the spiritual battle. And one verse says this, And though the world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim... We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Boom! One little word will fell him. All you need is the name of Jesus, and he has to run. One word. Are you with me? Amen. He has no claim on Jesus, and he has no claim on the children of the high king either. 
So John will write several other letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st John, he reminds his readers of the trials and the tribulations. And then he says this, little children, you're from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Great promise. Satan will not win this victory, and so we can rejoice. Let's go back to it as well. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. Satan might come up against us. There might be storms. But Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. Satan, do your worst. You cannot touch us. So the words of comfort and rejoicing are great gifts. And indeed, I think they're the main point of this text. I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, but take comfort. Don't freak out. But friends, the warning in this text is also very true. It is a sobering, hard text. That the path that leads to life is a narrow path, Jesus said, and few find it. In this context, all of those great crowds turned their back on him and cried, crucify. They were there because of the popularity, the excitement, the buzz, but they didn't intend to surrender their lives. And so let's bring it home. On the macro level, we need to be praying for our nation. Uh, the stats are coming out right now for 2023. Angus Reed and the polls are showing post-COVID return to religious services. It's not very good. So back 80 years ago, at the end of World War II, we hit our high point where 70% of Canadians went to a religious service on a weekly basis. It is down now in 2023, post-COVID, to 7%. And that 7% includes all religions, all the world religions, all the cults, the Mormons, the JWs, and all streams of Christianity, Catholic, charismatic, evangelical, mainline, everybody all lumped together. Only 7% of Canadians are in a religious service this weekend. We have much prayer to pray into. The majority, interestingly enough, still claim to be Christian. They just have no connection to a church. Hatinga wrote this back probably 20 years ago. In today's world, it's easy to see that believing in God doesn't necessarily mean much. The vast majority of people say they believe in God, but it's abundantly clear in the so-called Christian nations of the Western world that professing belief in God and allowing that belief to make any discernible difference in your life are two entirely different things. As obvious as that lack of logic is, it, seem, it seems few notice it. To believe in an all-powerful supreme being to whom you owe your very existence. And yet to live as though you're the one in control doesn't appear strange. It seems normal. So if it is true, uh, and our theology would tell us it is true, that only the Spirit of God can open the heart of an unbelieving individual. Do you believe that? You and I do not have that power. You and I can't reach in the soul of another individual and turn a light switch on. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And if that is true, then we have so much work to do for the sake of Canada that can only be done on our knees. As we talked about last week, we have to ask in Jesus' name. We have to ask that he would do what only he can do. Ask him and he will do it, he said. And so may God burden us with a love for our city and for our nation and for the majority of people who currently right now are unwilling to come to him. And may we cry out, oh God, please do not let us cross past your mercy into your wrath. God, please do not lift your hand of blessing across our nation. But what about us personally? 
And as we close, it would be wrong if I didn't ask you the personal question that we ask at the start of this message. I need to ask you this question. Do you have a soft heart? Are you individually, personally cultivating a soft, responsive, obedient heart to God. Jesus is going to go on to say to his disciples in this context, John 16, I'm saying these things to keep you from falling away. And so I know that every time we gather, there are two kinds of people who show up at our weekend gatherings. I don't necessarily know who you are, but I know these two groups of people are here. I know that there are Those of you who have turned away from, however you would define it, the ways of the world, your previous way of life, whatever it is, and you are walking toward Jesus, many of you who may even say, I I wouldn't even yet declare myself a Christian, but I'm on the journey toward it. I'm hungry. I'm seeking. I'm asking questions. And you have turned and you are walking toward Jesus on the journey. But I know every time we gather, and of course, I don't know who it is, but I know that right now in this room, There are individuals who have walked with Jesus and have currently turned your back and are walking the other direction. Right now, you're walking away from the Holy Spirit and you've taken back control of your life and you actually find the voice of the Spirit to be irritating. The preacher ticks you off. Your Christian friends upset you. The Bible is increasingly irrelevant to your life. And if that's you, then I must plead with you that you let not your heart be hardened. Let me ask you the question that when you find yourself annoyed by the voice of whether it's a preacher or a teacher or a Christian author or your parents or your friends or whoever it is that the Spirit is using, is it possible that what you're annoyed with is you are pressing back on the voice of the Spirit? You're angry Because God in his holiness is touching one of your idols. You see, following Jesus is indeed a narrow road. He said it over and over and over in this text. If you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll obey me. If you'll love me, you'll obey me. And only those who can see and hear and understand are willing to embrace that cost. There is indeed a line drawn across our life's path. A line where God's mercy meets God's wrath. And friends, he will not wait forever. If you tell him to get lost long enough, he will. So I want to pray with you and for you on that happy note and send you out the door. So let's stand together. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I would ask right now in this moment that you would do the work that you have to do. I pray that you would guard the word of Jesus in our hearts And whatever good seeds from this particular text need to land in the soil of our hearts, that you would allow it to land. And whatever is unnecessary, like chaff, just blow it away. Make your word live to us, Lord. Make it live to us. Lord, we rejoice in this. Uh, There's so much truth in this text. In this world, we have trouble. (laughs) We get that. We understand that very, very well. Every single one of us in this room. We see the trouble. And you've said, and I won't leave you alone. First and foremost, I'll give you one another. So love on one another. Oh God, how we need each other. Lord, I pray that we would never, ever, ever grow weary of gathering with the people of God, our family, our brothers and sisters. 
that even in this moment, as we look around this room, the men and women who are here, and we thank you that even though we don't know each other, all of us personally by name, that we know that we are not the only strange people trying to follow you. There's an entire room full of people who know you, who love you, who love your word, who love your church. Oh, Jesus, how we need one another. Encourage us that we would, as you did, lay our lives down in love for one another. Thank you for the comfort of your return, that you've gone to prepare a place for us, that the new heavens and the new earth is going to be restored. There's going to be a time of glory, and we keep our eyes on the horizon. We keep our eyes up. The signs of the times seem to be everywhere around us. Lord, keep us awake. Keep us alert. And then, Father, thank you for the gift of the Spirit. Your Spirit communes with our spirit. You let us know that we are the sons and daughters of the High King. And so, Lord, I pray for the individuals in this room who have turned towards you, who are walking towards you, who are seeking you. I pray, Lord, that you would answer their prayers, that that hunger would be filled as their eyes are opened and they understand true salvation in you and that they could come to that moment of full embrace and surrender to you. And Father, in a very, very particular way, I pray for individuals in this room who you know by your spirit, who right now have turned the other way. And oh God, in your mercy, would you pull them back? Would you pull them back? Would they not be irritated by the voice of the Spirit, Lord? Instead, would you pour out the oil and wine, the healing of your Spirit? Would you woo them? Would you draw them? Would you in tenderness call them to yourself? And Lord, even outside this room, I know that each one of us, there's hundreds of names and faces represented around this room as we think of friends, coworkers, family members, people that we know and love who are far from you right now, who are not walking towards you. Oh God, be gracious, be merciful. May they not cross that line into your wrath. Oh God, would you pull them back? And we ask for those blessings for your glory. And in that, we're gonna rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.